The last two weeks, we have received more COVID cases than the past, I would say, months. When we hit the peak back in, in, in maybe the summer, that's nothing compared to what we're living right now. El Paso is experiencing a now familiar crisis for Texas. So the numbers are exploding. We have numbers exploding in El Paso. And this is every single day. It's it's uh, uh, nonstop. Hospitals are also stretched very thin. That explosion in numbers brought Texas over a grim milestone. One million cases. It would be like saying, you know, one million people today were burned. Well, that's a lot of burned people, but it doesn't really capture the pain. We'll talk about that pain coming up on Petri Dish. Hunger is at multi-generational highs. We've never experienced food insecurity at this level uh, since we've been tracking the data, you know, for the last 20 years. What does it mean for people living it here in Texas? I'm Paul Flavin. We find out on the first episode of The Shakeout, TPR's new podcast charting the economic destruction of COVID-19. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. We're in El Paso at the Purchase Funeral Home. It's been another long day for Jorge Ortiz. He's the general manager here, and he just received another body. This one is from a local hospital. Ortiz guides the stretcher into the chapel. He's received so many bodies so quickly that this sacred space has been transformed into a refrigerator. And this is every single day. It's it's uh, uh, nonstop. Um, and it's been challenging. It's been stressful um, for, for our team. The cooling unit hums in the background holding off nature's course for these bodies just a little bit longer. COVID-19 is ripping through El Paso. Jorge Ortiz and other funeral home managers can't keep up with the bodies. Turning that chapel into a cooler, um, it was something that needed to be done because we, we, we were looking at the numbers just increasing. I, I don't know what we, we would have done Right now, hey, we would have done this back in, in, in July or August. I don't know. And they're dealing with loss, too. A funeral director named Harrison Johnson, nicknamed Lightning. Uh, we lost one, one of our great members, and Lightning will always be remembered. Um, he definitely was... Uh, a uh, stupendous person. He was just great. Every week in El Paso brings thousands of new cases, hundreds of hospitalizations, dozens of deaths. The recent surges here and in other cities like Lubbock and Amarillo just put Texas over a grim milestone, one million total cases of COVID-19. According to the Texas Department of State Health Services, 
nearly 20,000 deaths statewide. 20,000 deaths. Parents, grandparents, siblings, friends, and co-workers alive on New Year's Day, dead before Thanksgiving. From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petri. Today, one million Texans with COVID-19. How did we get here? And what lies ahead? So, yes, there are one million confirmed cases of novel coronavirus infection in Texas since the beginning of this pandemic. We like being first down here, but no one likes this. The first case of COVID-19 reported in Texas, not counting the evacuees from China and the Diamond Princess cruise ship that were quarantined in San Antonio back in February, that was on March 4th. So in eight months, one person became two, two became four, four became 16, until one million Texans were infected. And those nearly 20,000 deaths occurred steadily over these eight months, a drip, drip of death over days and weeks and months. There was also that vicious surge in the summer that stunned Texas's cities and nearly drowned the Rio Grande Valley in COVID patients for which they didn't have enough beds or supplies to care for all of them. And now, in rural areas where long stretches of lonely land stand between a patient and a hospital, and in El Paso, where they're turning chapels into morgues because they don't have room for the dead anymore, the worst surge yet, with no end in sight. So I want to start in the epicenter of the COVID crisis in Texas right now. That's El Paso. And so I'm going to bring in Mallory Falk of KERA and Angela Kacherga of KTEP, both reporting from El Paso. Hello, both of you. So I guess we should start with how we got here, how we got to a place where we're turning chapels into morgues. Mallory? Uh, so I spoke with um, Jorge Ortiz about this, and he says he really started to see the number of bodies increasing about two weeks ago. The last two weeks, we have received more COVID cases than the past, I would say, months. When we hit the peak back in, in, in maybe the summer, that's nothing compared to what we're living right now. We have, you know, directors who are meeting with um, five, six families a day, and this is every single day. It's it's uh, uh, nonstop. They've started doing drive-through services and live streaming services, so that as many people as possible can can participate in some way, can be there in some way, even if it's not physically. All this takes an emotional toll, and Ortiz says he and his colleagues are worried about their own health, about bringing the virus home to their families, but he feels compelled to keep doing this work. You know, every day just waking up and saying, you know, even though uh, I, I, I do um, 
care about my health as well as my family. You know, this is something that I need to, um, my service needs to be provided to these families that are mourning because, you know, I know how it feels. I have lost family members. I have lost friends. And they have come to me, you know, um, their family members just desperate. Um, they need guidance. They need, they need help. And if funeral homes are beyond capacity, well, I could just imagine what's happening in the hospitals. Mallory, what's the situation there? Hospitals are also stretched very thin. They've expanded their capacity in part because of resources that both the state and federal government have sent in. And so you see medical tents set up in hospital parking lots to expand capacity. El Paso's convention center has converted into a makeshift field hospital. And we're also seeing dozens of ICU patients flown to other cities in Texas for treatment to try to relieve some of that pressure on local hospitals. So what percentage of these patients in these hospitals are COVID patients? So on the whole, it's about half of the hospitalized patients. I spoke today with uh, Dr. Joel Hendricks, chief medical officer at University Medical Center, and he said that at his own hospital, which is one of the region's largest, he estimates that more than 60% of patients are actually there because of COVID. And that's why we think it's very important for El Paso to start blunting this curve and decreasing the amount of infections that are being transmitted. We haven't even gotten to flu season yet, which will affect all of all the nation and in particular Texas, where most of our resources are coming from. So we know in the past with surges in various areas that hospitals have been able to get help from the state and the federal government for, you know, more medical workers like nurses and respiratory techs and that kind of thing and supplies. And that certainly has helped when areas were crunched in the past. But now that we've got cases surging sort of everywhere, um, is that going to be enough? Real concern is as numbers start to spike in other parts of the state, there's only so many resources potentially to go around. And I think that's a real concern here of what happens when other communities need this kind of support. Will there be enough resources to serve El Paso and other communities? We saw that the state is now sending resources to Lubbock, which is another hotspot in Texas. Angela, what are you seeing? It's kind of been this ebb and flow the last couple of weeks because we had a temporary shutdown that was supposed to be extended, but then the legal fight started. So that was put on hold. But businesses, you know, they're complaining. They're kind of getting caught in the middle of all this. And the general public seems to be getting whiplash trying to figure out, are we open? Are we shut down? And there's quite a bit of confusion. Which probably isn't helped by what's happening at the government level. Uh, as you've been reporting, Angela, between the city and the county and the state in regard to shutting down El Paso, which has ended up in court. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, we've got this back and forth legal battle over who has the authority to shut down a city or county. Now, the county judge said with hospitals filled to capacity and half of all the patients, COVID patients, he really had no other choice in his mind than to order an overnight curfew and a shutdown of non-essential businesses. Of course, the group of El Paso restaurant owners and the Texas Attorney General disagreed with that vehemently and went to court to stop it. 
The argument is that only the governor has the power to shut down or issue these types of emergency orders. Now, the mayor of El Paso, Dee Margo, is at odds with his own county judge. He did not back the shutdown. His city police force did not enforce it. And here's what he had to say at a press conference earlier this week. How is the county going to provide financial assistance for the business owners who still have to pay their taxes? And what is the plan for the families struggling to put food on their table? I have several, I've said for several months, we've got to find a balance between economic health and public health. And that balance requires all of us to change our behavior. It's that same debate between lives and livelihoods. You can hear the stress and strain in his voice. Some difficult decisions are having to be made, and it's created a political battle. And those business owners, how are they doing? There is a lot of pressure from businesses large and small, Bonnie, to stay open. They feel like they've been caught in the middle and getting mixed messages about whether to shut down. And, you know, business owners really balked when they thought the county judge was going to be able to extend the shutdown order through December 1st. Of course, that's now on hold. And Laura Rayburn, she owns Foliage Hair Salon and Spa in El Paso. She has 19 employees, and she said some businesses worried that they would not survive if the shutdown extended into the start of the holiday season. A lot of businesses would have shut down permanently. I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of people are struggling. You know, I was able to talk to so many business owners. You know, we, you know, I work with the uh, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the El Paso Chamber of Commerce, and people were struggling. Like, a lot of people were nervous. What are we going to do? 30% of our business comes through, um, comes through Christmas. And this is not just salon and spas. This is almost every small business. So a real real concern, you know, for the economic health of of a community like El Paso. But, you know, even even Rayburn said she she is still very, very worried about her city and this devastating COVID impact. Um, Here's what she said about that decision that she could reopen again back and forth. Even though we were able to open yesterday when I was going home, I I was really sad, like, I I wanted to cry because there's still a lot of people that are sick in the hospital and they're dying. It's it's it. This is not a win for anybody. This is not a victory. Enforcement. That's going to be so important and so difficult during the holiday season. You know, I mean, people are going to want to get together with their families for the holidays and the baseline where we're starting at the holiday season is at a million cases. It only goes up from there exponentially. Uh, The virus is gaining speed. So aside from the shutdown, Angela, is El Paso doing anything to try and sort of convince people to slow the spread and take precautions to protect themselves and their families before and during the holidays? Well, I think that that's the biggest concern, and and Mallory can certainly weigh in on this too. Is uh, with this loom, you know, looming sounds like a horrible way to look at the holidays, but given the COVID spread, we we can't help but dread what might happen. You know, El Paso, one of our strengths is we're very we're very family oriented. It's a close knit community. These are large extended families, sometimes extending to both sides of the border, often, and these are multi generational families. So you will have people of all ages, including very vulnerable grandparents. So, of course, that's one thing everyone can agree on, you know, all different levels of of county, city, government, health authorities, businesses, you know, asking people, please take personal precautions and don't mix households. Only have dinner with your own family members that live with you. 
you know, circling back to Jorge Ortiz, who manages funeral homes here, he talked about the really devastating effect that that these types of deaths in particular have on families when you can't be in the room saying goodbye to your loved one. They haven't been there when they have passed and they just took them to emergency. They left them there and next time they saw them was two weeks later when they passed away. They saw them in, in a coffin. They saw them in, in the funeral home. And, you know, he just, he he's seeing this up close, what it does to people um, to lose someone in this way. And, yeah, really wants to drive home that message. And I think people who are experiencing this up close are really trying to drive that message home as we enter into the holiday season. Mallory Falk of KERA and Angela Kacherga of KTEP, both in El Paso, Texas. Thank you both for speaking with us. Thanks, Bonnie. Thank you, Bonnie. Okay. In July, Texas experienced a serious COVID surge and it battered another border area, the Rio Grande Valley. That's when we introduced you to Dr. Ivan Melendez in McAllen. He's not getting any better, man. It's no, been days. No, he's so not. So let's get a blood gas because we may we may have to intubate it. Can you get a blood gas for me? Dr. Melendez, I am not going to be able to get that blood why, gas. Why? Why not? We are having problems. We are short with respiratory therapy. They, we don't have the manpower in the lab. Back in July, Dr. Melendez was treating a COVID patient who needed a BiPAP machine, which is kind of like a CPAP that a lot of people wear for sleep apnea. So in this case, the BiPAP was used to get enough oxygen into the patient's body. Melendez told us about this patient back then. So I just walked in and when I'm there, I see this this, uh, human being that's bloated. Uh, He's swollen in his face and his belly and his legs. He has a BiPAP mask, which is a mask that covers your entire face, which is attached to a machine that blows air to it, forces air into it. And and so I couldn't see his face. I couldn't identify him. He was just another in a long line of extremely sick COVID patients. Melendez would treat that night, just like the night before and probably the night after. So all of a sudden, he just lifted his hand, popped the mask off, looked at me and uh, and used uh, some selective words and said, XX Melendez, don't you even recognize me? And when I saw him and I heard his voice, and as you say, saw his eyes, I went, oh my God, that's my friend Albert. And I said, oh my God, it's you. (laughs) And he says, yeah, look at me, I'm gonna die. And of course you mean, no, you're not, no, you're not. Albert, Albert was his friend. They worked together when Melendez was a young doctor and Albert was a young nurse. And now Albert was hovering on the edge of death during a hot valley summer with COVID cases spiking. But Melendez was not going to give up on Albert without a fight. He recorded himself talking to his friend using the medical terms he, a nurse, would understand. Yesterday I got really aggressive on you. I increased your steroids. I added a new antibiotic. Actually, I stopped the antiviral because a lot of people, the antiviral, they just don't do, I don't know what it is about it, but they don't do well. So uh, I stopped the antiviral, I increased your steroids, I put a new antibiotic, and quite frankly, yesterday you looked like you were going to give up, but today you look a lot stronger. Do you feel better? 
Good. Albert fought hard for days. Melendez fought hard for Albert for days. All right, man. You know, you know how much I care about you, right? Okay. I don't hug you because you know how that goes. <laughs> no hugging. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. And in the end, Albert died. I talked to Dr. Melendez the other day. I caught him on Zoom when he was in the middle of a shift. He says he works as much as he can to keep his mind off of everything else. They got through the summer surge, he says, and there was a brief calm. But like anyone who lives near the Gulf of Mexico knows, calm might just be the eye of the hurricane. So the numbers are exploding. We have numbers exploding in El Paso. Our numbers ourselves here in South Texas decreased from the, the wild uh, rodeo rate, uh, days of July. But the last uh, 10 to 15 days, we're seeing an increase. Melendez looks back over the last nine months, and he thinks that from the beginning, we just didn't take this virus seriously enough. I think that we had um, probably underestimated this virus's capacity to infect people. Um, you know, we, we thought it was like the previous coronaviruses and MERS or SARS or, uh, or influenza even, um, that yes, yeah, sure it would be uh, infectious, but nowhere to this stage. I mean, this this little virus has proved out to be extremely capable of infecting people. And here we are at a million infections in Texas. But Dr. Melendez, he thinks these numbers are just meaningless to too many of us. It would be like saying, you know, one million people today were burned. Well, that's a lot of burned people, but it doesn't really capture the pain behind these burns that are occurring. So. The numbers certainly don't do justice to the pain. Dr. Melendez is also a COVID survivor. I asked him how he's feeling. I'm tired. You know, now we're doing uh, 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 autopsies on people who had COVID months ago, and they die uh, now from a, from a different cause. And as you're doing the autopsies, you're seeing that the uh, lungs and the heart continue to have inflammatory swelling. There's still edema to these cells. And so we know that the long-term effect of corona is continuing. We don't know to what extent, but certainly when your symptoms go away, that doesn't mean that the damage and the inflammatory changes do so. And what about the emotional damage? How is a man who's self-treating his trauma by working more holding up emotionally? Does he think about Albert? You know, I do, and I think about his widow, you know, I think about his widow, and I, and I think about a couple of other really close people that have died to me. Sometimes I feel that the family member um, feels that I failed. Why didn't I save them? Even though I think they understand that this is a horrible disease and I did the best that I could. However, then I stop and I think maybe it's just in my head and maybe it's my own sense of guilt that I'm feeling that, and it's not really the family member. I'm just projecting that. It's very complicated. Rio Grande Valley, home to more than a million people across several counties, has no public hospitals. And 31% of the people who live in Hidalgo County, where McAllen is and Dr. Melendez is, have no health insurance the highest rate of uninsured people in the state. 
So Texas has more COVID-19 infections than any other state and more than many countries. And Texas is also the most uninsured state in the nation. And get this, the pandemic-induced recession has made this problem even worse. If you lose your job, you lose your benefits, right? And according to an analysis by Families USA, which is a nonpartisan consumer advocacy group, more than 650,000 Texans have lost their health insurance since the start of the pandemic. So out of every four residents, at least one doesn't have insurance. Well over 7 million uninsured people. So a debilitating disease with long-lasting effects in many cases is now colliding with a health infrastructure that doesn't help a big chunk of the population. Yes, long-term effects. What kind of long-term effects? One of the concerns about having such a high number of confirmed COVID infections is we don't know what the long-term effects are of this disease, even in people who don't ever experience symptoms, and that includes children. So we're going to check back in with someone who shared their story with us back in May. I've got a little herd of goats I go down. i got some livestock down the road, and we check on livestock every day. I'd like to bring on our producer, Dominic Anthony Walsh, to talk about this. Dominic? Hey, Bonnie. Yeah, so we spoke with Joe Doria back in June. He was experiencing fatigue, shortness of breath, memory loss, and... Uh, someone brought us a plate of barbecue chicken right when I got out of the hospital, and it smelled so good, looked so great. I put it in my mouth, and as soon as I bit it, I was like, no flavor whatsoever. Half a year later, he's mostly gotten his taste back, but he's still dealing with long-term issues. My chronic fatigue is very strong right now. I do have some of the side effects that I've noticed personally is uh, lack of memory, uh, long-term memory and short-term memory. And he was actually infected way back in March. So now it's been about nine months since the infection. Short-term memory is a lot better, but the long-term memory is I can't remember names and situations. Um, and I'm, I struggle with that. Uh, I do believe that that uh, it does. It's going to have some very long-term effects. I'm at about 75 percent, I think, right now. And he says he's also experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And a lot of that is because of the way I was in the bed, isolated for so long during the early, early stages of COVID, where the nurses were only allowed to come in my room twice a day. Um, so it's almost like solitary confinement. Um, and you learn to look at the walls and you learn to look at the TV and you learn to look at the clock and you listen to the beeps. And I struggle with beeping noises. I struggle with large glass windows. So he's dealing with mental health challenges and physical challenges. He still runs out of breath and altogether it's hard for him. He's used to working 14 hour days and COVID-19 has definitely changed his life. So I think to many people, it's unsurprising that Joe is still sort of struggling to breathe. After all, this is primarily a respiratory virus. But he mentioned issues with memory, issues with PTSD. Experts have been warning us this virus attacks just about every system in the body through the blood vessels, as we told you about in a Petri dish episode in June. 
And what's becoming painfully clear is the effects continue long after this virus has cleared from your body. So Houston Public Media's Sarah Willa Ernst has been in touch with someone dealing with similar issues. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bonnie. Yeah, Joe is definitely not alone. If I go outside and I spend more than 60 to 90 minutes doing anything, I really pay for it in terms of like how exhausted I am. Not, and I'm not even talking, you know, a real exertion and, and anything vigorous at all. Just like being outside. <laughs> like it, it, it exhausts me. This is Donna Kin Murphy. Uh, she's a neurologist and a community organizer. And let me just say she's incredibly active. She also got COVID way back in March. And, you know, nine months later, she's also dealing with a range of complications. I mean, I'm typically a very energetic and optimistic person. I'm very realistic, I think, in that I can really um, assess the situation for the issues and, and how we need to tackle those issues but uh, or the challenges. But I am, at the same time, very optimistic. And in this period, for about two weeks, I got super depressed and very suddenly. Um, and, you know, I was kind of like passively suicidal, like not really wanting to be here anymore, thinking like this is awful what's happening in the world around us. And um, I mean, that's very uncharacteristic for me. And, um, you know, then became very concerned about like my own sense of like self-worth in, in this context of not being able to perform as I once had been able to perform, you know, the possibility that this was maybe a long-term <laughs> circumstance and I didn't know what to do with it and she's experiencing this as a trained neurologist. I mean, she was really going into depth into the minutia of exactly what was happening to her brain. Like she also experienced this thing called alien hand syndrome, which is basically like her hand feels very strange to her. But in more severe cases, it feels like yeah, somebody else is controlling your hand for you. For her, it just wasn't that severe, but she says it's still pretty bizarre. Um, and in her experience as a neurologist, it's something that would point to risk of stroke. And, and for her, even though her brain scans, you know, nothing showed up, she thinks and she's kind of skeptical that maybe she ha is experiencing or has experienced a very, very, very small stroke. Yes, yeah, since early in the course of this pandemic, it's been pretty clear that COVID can cause tiny strokes and blood clots, even in young people, folks in their 20s. And there is a long list of long-term effects, so many that it's become known as long COVID or long-term COVID. People who suffer from that often describe brain fog, like we heard about from Joe and Donna, extreme fatigue, shortness of breath, also pain. They're finding inflammation of the heart in people who never had any symptoms of COVID, kidney issues, skin issues, psychiatric issues. So my question is, with more than a million people in Texas infected with COVID-19, how many of them are going to suffer long-term effects? Dominic? Right, right. Well, I asked Dr. Phil Wong, the director of Dallas County Health and Human Services, do we even know how many people are or will suffer from these long-term effects? Right now, we really don't know how many. Um, again, I think this is something, there's so many unknowns about this. This is why it's so important. You know, you, no one can say this is a hoax. No one should just uh, take this lightly. Uh, we don't know long-term effects. We don't know long-term effects on infection on children. Uh, you know, there's just so much unknown. 
So to keep track, he said, we don't know or unknown, what, five times in that 20-second answer? And this is the big problem. There are a few research teams trying to figure out what percentage of people suffer from these long-term issues, but there's nothing definitive just yet. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of a small survey that CDC did over the summer. It was fewer than 300 patients, interviews anywhere between one to three weeks after their positive test. More than 35% didn't return to normal health two to three weeks later. But there are also people who struggle for months, and they might struggle for years or for the rest of their lives. We just don't know yet. Sarah, what have you found out? Well, Bonnie, we we do have data from pre-COVID times about what an ICU stay can do to somebody. Here's Dr. Kay Gundapali with Bentop Hospital in Houston. This is the information we knew before the COVID time, that ICU survivors have something called post-ICU syndrome. Anxiety, PTSD, and depression, almost 30, 40, up to 50% of patients who are discharged from ICU can suffer from these. And, you know, as we mentioned before, there are a lot of other effects, and so there definitely is a need for follow-up care. Here in Houston, I know Memorial Hermann Hospital, they do follow-up care via telehealth app, and that's pretty new. And Ben Taub Hospital, the the public hospital in Houston that we were talking about before, they recently opened up a post-COVID-19 clinic. Dr. Guntapali says most patients at the clinic come off of supplemental oxygen, but... Maybe another 20 to 30% of the patients I'll have to see them because either their lungs are fibrosed or they still have a need for uh, oxygen. Um, Few patients I had to refer, refer to psychiatry because there were symptoms of depression and things like that. And the depression aspect is important. Gundapali says her clinic has a very specific definition of recovered. We consider them uh, completely recovered when they're home, uh, not on any oxygen support, when they're able to care for themselves and they don't have any cognitive uh, problems or any um, psychiatric issues like depression or some of the consequences of uh, acute illness. But that's her definition. We have a hospital-by-hospital, sort of county-by-county response right now. There are some places that consider recovered, air quotes, to just mean being released from the hospital. Well, I think there's a broader point that we need to consider. Texas is home to a lot of people without insurance and a lot of people without documentation. These groups often suffer in silence for fear of big bills or interactions with authorities that they fear will deport them. Dr. Phil Wong says it's not uncommon for people to be reluctant to seek care until the last possible minute. Thank you, TPR's Dominic Anthony Walsh and Houston Public Media's Sarah Willa Ernst for your reporting. So what do people do when they don't have insurance and they just don't have the money for a doctor visit or a stay in the hospital? People who can't even afford to be sick because they can't afford to take off time from work. Often those people are working in a category that we know now as essential work. They're essential workers and often essential workers, people who have to work during a pandemic are black or brown. Let's dive into that for a bit. 
before the coronavirus hit, the U.S. workforce was already deeply segregated. Black, Latino, and Latino workers are more often employed in low-wage jobs and service jobs. And paradoxically, many of those low-wage service sector jobs are also what we now see as essential jobs. We're talking about grocery stores, the farms, the food processing plants. The risks of going to work right now are disproportionately falling onto black and brown communities, which are also reporting the most COVID deaths. Here in Texas, one industry that employs many migrants and people of color is the meatpacking industry. These jobs are high risk in the best of times. You know, tight spaces, sharp blades, sometimes fast moving production lines. Now, the virus is yet another workplace hazard. Testing one, two, three. Back in the spring, a meat processing plant in Dallas temporarily closed its doors after several workers tested positive for COVID-19 and two died. Hugo Dominguez was one of those workers. He was a forklift operator at Quality Sausage, and he died on April 25th at the age of 36. Three days after her longtime partner died of COVID-19, Blanca Parra stood up in front of reporters just outside the meat processing plant where Dominguez had worked. Hugo was a wonderful person. Uh, he was always taking care of our family. He only want to stop. He was still working. He want to work a lot for our kids. KERA Stella Chavez brought us this story and has stayed in touch with the Dominguez family. Hi, Bonnie. So first, there were two workers who died, um, and one was named Mateus Martinez, and he was about to turn 53. He was originally from Mexico. The other worker we know of is Hugo Dominguez. He was 36 when he died. And by the way, the company won't confirm how many workers tested positive or how many have died, um, but we'll get back to that in a little bit. But back to Hugo, I've been in touch with his family since April. And back in April, during a press conference, Hugo's brother, Pablo Dominguez, talked a little bit about his brother. To be honest, I feel very sad by the death of my brother. He said he felt very sad about his brother dying, and he talked about the last time he saw him, which was over a video call. Oh, man, that's, yeah, the kind of thing that haunts you. You can't go back. You can't change it. You don't get over it. So so I know that the family filed a lawsuit. Where are they with that? Right. Yeah. So the lawsuit is still pending and, you know, no updates from either the company or the family on where things stand with that. But just a few days ago, I learned that OSHA has issued three separate citations and also levied three fines totaling more than $25,000 against Quality Sausage. And as far as I know, the citations are tied to reporting to the government information about worker deaths or injuries or illness. I don't have additional information at this time, but I have requested that from the government. I also reached out to a company spokesperson, and he told me that 
Quality Sausage has no update since its last statement uh, after the company had temporarily paused production. And in that statement, the company listed several safety measures that it had implemented. It's been seven months now since Ugo died. And Stella, you've stayed in touch with Blanca. How's she doing? She says her life has changed a lot, and they're dealing with these scars that are going to take a long time to heal. She has three children, ages 9, 14, and 23. Domingas was their dad, and he was also the family breadwinner. It's como si se hubiera derrumbado un edificio y estamos empezando a poner los ladrillitos poco a poco. It's like a building collapse, she says, and they have to put it back together brick by brick. Dominguez often worked more than 40 hours a week, as many as 80 hours a week. And, you know, Bonnie, that's a huge loss of income for the family. After his death, she got a job at the Salvation Army in Plano, and she helps organize the food pantry there. But this is only a part-time job. She can't work full-time because of her kids. Her two youngest are still in school, and they're taking virtual classes from home. Uh, She says her 14-year-old daughter has a compromised immune system, and her youngest son, who's nine, has autism. So he needs extra attention and care. Here, Blanca talks about the emotional toll of Dominguez's death. Todo mundo habla de las consecuencias de salud, habla de los problemas económicos. Blanca says everyone talks about the consequences to your health, the economic problems of COVID, but she says nobody talks about the psychological trauma that children experience when they lose a parent. She says nobody talks about low morale after a family loses someone, and in this case, someone who was the pillar of their home. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know that they had big plans for this year. Yes, Blanca and Hugo were planning to get married this year. I mean, even with COVID, they wanted to get married before the end of the year. And one of the reasons is they have a daughter who turns 15 next year, and they wanted to celebrate that as a family. Like for so many of us, Bonnie, there are a lot of things that they used to do as a family that they can't or won't do anymore out of safety precautions. Like they used to go to places like Chuck E. Cheese and Six Flags, and they don't do that anymore. They don't like being near large groups of people. She says, Blanca says they keep their distance and they're always wearing masks out in public. And her kids are hyper aware of this. They're taking this pandemic pretty seriously. She talks about how her children have been affected. Blanca says what happened to their dad scared them a lot. It's not easy to confront that reality. And wherever they go, they're afraid of getting infected. And because of that, they're keeping their distance. And consequently, they feel a bit isolated. Thank you, Stella. Thank you, Bonnie. But you know, even during a time shrouded in sickness and too much death, there's life. There's birth. There are babies. Christy Calloway and her husband have been trying to have a baby for such a long time. We introduced you to the Callaways of Corpus Christi in April. Which side did I do last night? Left? Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, that hurt. 
there's a lot of residual on the needle. So back in April, Christy recorded her husband giving her hormone shots as he'd done when they were undergoing a fertility treatment known as IVF, and then again to prepare her body for the resulting embryo to be transferred into her uterus. And she shared with us back then that she was feeling a lot of anxiety about proceeding with a pregnancy when the world was in such disarray. The worry set in, oh no, what are we doing? Oh no, is this the right timing? Um, and it's just, even before the pandemic hit and we were preparing the first time for an embryo transfer, there was so much worry involved because again, the embryos are safe as long as they're frozen. <laughs> and when we take one out of that environment and put it into me, what kind of environment am I going to be there's so much risk. There's just infinite fears. But in May, Christy and her husband decided their hope was greater than their fear. They had the embryo transfer. And now Christy is six months pregnant with a baby boy they've named Emmett. And so we did the transfer on May 28th. And did a whole lot of praying and resting and waiting. And uh, thank God this little embryo stuck and has decided to stick around. And um, I'm now over halfway to the finish line with our little baby boy. So right there, you're hearing the sound of an at-home Doppler device that allows you to sort of check in and listen to your baby's heartbeat at home. He's very active. He's always dancing or doing somersaults. And I mean, I feel him all the time and I smile every time I do. And it's just, you know, my new favorite pastime is trying to get video of him moving, like of my belly from the outside. Christy's pregnancy is a dream come true. I wish I could just stop time sometimes just because I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying being pregnant and I'm enjoying this experience. I wish parts of it were different, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm loving it. But as she watches Noises County, where she lives, approach 17,000 cases. It's frustrating and it you know, it gets to a point where it's almost infuriating because I look around and I see all these posts on social media and it's friends and family members still going about their lives like like life is normal, like there is no pandemic. And, you know, you just want to grab them and shake them and say, like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? She's been staying home for the better part of nine months now, which has been hard She's incredibly close to her mother and her brother and her grandparents who are in their 80s and visiting them at their homes four hours away. Well, that has been off the table. I saw my family in January before all of this hit the fan, and I didn't see them again until the end of September. Um, that's the longest I've ever gone without seeing my mom and my brother and my grandparents. Um, that was extremely hard. That has, was the hardest part of all of this, was just not being able to see them. By September, though, 
Christie's clan couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> they needed to see each other. So they all piled up into her mom's car and drove from Santa Fe in Galveston County to Christie's house in Corpus. I thought it would be really cute to put on a hazmat suit and a face shield and a mask and gloves and booties and greet them when they got here. I did not know that they would come piling out of the car all wearing the exact same thing. And so (laughs) we got some pretty good pictures of the whole family wearing hazmat suits and face shields and, and all that good stuff. They took all the pandemic precautions and they had a safe visit, but it will be the only visit for a while. You know, we're, we're missing out on Thanksgiving with the big family and Christmas with the big family. I asked her how she feels after scrupulously taking pandemic precautions for all these months, doing everything right as Texas reaches a million confirmed cases. It's scary to me because I, like everyone else, have wanted this to get better. And here we are getting worse again. And I think any mom would be concerned about that and about having a child in a world where this virus is not under control. Um, and my, my child isn't even here yet, and I'm, I'm scared for him and I'm sad for him. Christy used to think this would all be over by the time Emmett is born in February. She doesn't think that anymore. So she'll keep taking precautions and doing everything she can to make sure she, her husband, and her baby don't become part of the next million confirmed cases in Texas. So over the last week, as I reported on Texas reaching one million confirmed infections, I also watched the daily infection numbers nationwide climb so swiftly toward the sky. At the beginning of November, we started posting 100,000 new infections a day. We're now racing ever closer to 200,000 new infections a day. And now, the holidays. Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. For some families this year, there'll be the reminders of all they've lost this year. For others, those who don't take seriously this virus's relentless march through the population, they might host or attend big family gatherings and the holidays, this time of joy, might be the thing that ushers them into this awful growing club, families marked by COVID. It seems wrong, doesn't it, to feel so much dread over the holiday season. It's my favorite season, but I do. You know, I've heard some people say that they won't take precautions against the pandemic because they refuse to live in fear. Fear. I'm not sure the people who say this really understand fear. You know, the kind of fear that tastes like metal in your mouth. No, 
No, fear is what you feel when your mom or dad or husband or wife, your brother, your sister, your child, can't breathe on their own and they're in gasping agony. You know that. But you don't know if they're going to survive this. You don't know if they'll live. That's fear. Fear is being the one in that bed, straining to breathe and wanting your mom or your husband or someone you love to hold your hand because you don't know if you're going to survive this and you don't want to die alone. That's fear. You can choose hope over fear, but it doesn't have anything to do with not wearing a mask. Christy Calloway and her husband chose hope over fear. They chose now to have their baby. She protects herself and her baby and her mom and her brother and her grandparents and her choices to stay home and mask up on the rare occasion she's out. She does all that because she's choosing hope over fear. We protect each other now so that we're all here to celebrate each other when this is all over. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh, Michael Trevino, and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Cabarena. Special thanks this week to KERA's news director, Rick Holter, and reporters Mallory Falk and Stella Chavez, KTEP's Angela Kacherka, and Houston Public Media's Sarah Willa Ernst. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Bebbitt is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>